HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Boys, I'm mellow as a honeydew. Yeah. That cat is high. Look that look in his eye. Oh, man, he's high. Yes, higher than a kite. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. Today, we have good friend of the show, repeat guest, and all-around whiskey aficionado and badass, Nick Jarrett. Hello, everyone. Glad Welcome to be back. back. Welcome back. So, this has been a show that we've been talking about for weeks, if not months now. Oh, absolutely. Um, the issues at hand in the modern uh, whiskey world, uh, specifically the way that, well, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but uh, specifically oh, yeah. the way that the proof has been dropping on certain whiskeys, specifically Rise and Old, Old Overhaul, for one. Absolutely. Um, and then also with, with the rye boom over the past few years, um, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's a very exciting time for whiskeys, but at the same time, it's like there, there are a lot of kind of shady decisions being sort made of sleeper problems going on that yeah. no one's paying attention to yeah absolutely. absolutely um one of those being like you know obviously we were talking about right before the show about old overholt bottled in bond absolutely and it's i can't wait to try it because i've actually never had it this is the eight year uh red cap bottled in bond but before we get into that sure uh let's talk a little bit about tell us a little bit about over uh old overholt as a company and the history of uh, the actual spirit. Well, yeah, sure. Um, Old Overholt's one of the classic and really a long... Actually, it's the only really remaining example of a legacy label of Western Pennsylvania rye. Rittenhouse is still kicking around, but they were always Eastern Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia area. So Old Overholt has roots as a label and a company that go back to 1810 and Monongahela rye in general, which were one of the country's first popular spirits right after uh, rum really took off and then went down after uh, the revolution. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's always been a favorite of mine. It's a great bottle. Uh, it was picked up and run through Prohibition by the American Medicinal Spirits Company as a medicinal whiskey, which was sort of a dodge on still getting your, uh, you know, brown liquors during the right. whole ill-conceived decision to ban alcohol in this country. 
And American Medical Spirit sort of bought up a bunch of old stock and then labels, converted to national distillers after uh, Prohibition was repealed, ran as a company with a number of other products, I believe uh, Old Grandad, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Vernon, I think, was part of their uh, category, and at least one other, up until their purchase by uh, Beam in the 70s. Beam sort of uh, switched over the Overholt uh, mash bill and formula and began making some changes to the product line. The only one that they really kept distinct was Old Grandad, because Old Grandad, as a high rye bourbon, was so different from their current mash bill that the drinkers in market focus groups rejected Jim Beam as Old Grandad. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic product. And actually, let's drink a little bit of today's Old Overholt right now. Mm. (sighs) This one, to me, is always... It's always had that like kind of peanut, like nutty kind of thing, you know, like uh, sure. super light and yeah. We were talking about like peanut shells uh, before, and yeah. you still get like a little bit of fruit in the background. Like mm-hmm. there's some strange like tropical notes going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always get a little bit of a hint of mango and like some sure. tropical stuff way in the background. And rye traditionally was a very fruity beverage in its youth. I don't have any here today, but I was drinking some Maryland rye recently, and I was floored by just exactly how banana and, like, crazy mango and fruity that style of rye was. But uh, Old Overholt is one of a couple of ryes that we've had around continuously since Prohibition. It's remained in production, although traded off, um, but kind of been on, you know, more or less a downhill slant over the past... 20, 30, 40 years. And why, why is that? Did it, did it just fall out of vogue? I mean, like, was it, did it have anything to do with, you know, other spirits becoming more popular? Was it availability or was it a little bit of everything? Well, I think that we have to sort of discuss the fact that first with prohibition, American taste changed substantially. Liquor was right. pretty difficult to get a hold of, especially American liquor for 13 years. Um, taste sort of switched over to Canadian whiskey. Blended which rye. was much more available. And America's always had a strong tradition of blended rye. Um, Maryland, again, in particular, was a huge... Like, that was sort of the house style, though it was blended straights. Canadian rye uses some very, very high rye content, and it blends with a lot of just neutral grain and then corn. So, after Prohibition, people were drinking more imports. Blended scotch was very popular. Mm-hmm. And then shortly on the heels of Prohibition, of course, vodka blew up. Right. Um... In the 60s, there was a whole introduction of new classifications of whiskey, you know, light whiskey, blended whiskey, spirit whiskey, which were whiskey companies trying to hop on and fight, like, the fact that vodka and lighter spirits like rum were rapidly cannibalizing their sales. So everyone was trying to take the flavor out of whiskey and, uh, you know, denatured quite a few good products. Now, we do have here uh, today uh, a little bit of a bottle of some 1951 Old Overholt bottled and bond aged eight years which is very different from what we just drank. Uh, It's made, actually, this bottle was made in Broadford, Pennsylvania, before the Pennsylvania distillery was closed. It's 100 proof, not 80 proof, as a bottle and bond is required by law. Mm -hmm. It's eight years old as opposed to four years old. And, I mean, even today, the bonding regulations have changed, but this one is actually vintage dated. So it's one distiller, one season. This particular season was 1951, and it was bottled in 1960. So let me just pour a little quick sip of that. Absolutely. Us. I've been waiting for this moment for a while. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Um, and another thing about the... Uh, okay, okay, so um, this is 1951 to 1960. Um, when did they go from 100 proof to... They dropped to 86 proof, and then they dropped to 80. When was when do you think that was? 
You know, I'm not a hundred percent sure on when they dropped the dropped the bonding. I'm pretty sure that that happened even before uh, National was picked up by Jim Beam. Okay. Which was just part of a general trend in reducing proof and spirits in general to introduce lighter flavors. Now, you'll notice right off the bat that you can't say that this is light at all. This bottle was full when I opened it, unopened. I've obviously taken a couple Ooh. of nips out of it since then. But Jesus Christ. This is some good 60-year-old bourbon that we're about to drink here. And it definitely does evolve in the bottle because congeners sort of right. adjust over time. That is really, really good. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's... And you get the Rick House in this, you know, on sure. the nose and in the palate. There's wood, but then, like, the fruit starts opening yeah. up. And there's the fruit in the rye that I used to be talking about. Rye, as you age it for a long time, like bourbon, like, you get a lot more sort of herbal, herbaceous, like, uh, notes that come out of it. But a medium-aged rye, like, once you have enough age on that it begins to mellow out, which is really a little bit more than four years, right. which is unfortunately one of the difficulties with rye today. Um, like the wood starts to sort of cover up the harshness and you just get like, this is a fruit bomb to me. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. This is tropical. Absolutely. From Broadford, Pennsylvania. And, you know, you still have a little bit of that peanut note that I think you were tasting before, mm -hmm. which I wonder if that might be the yeast actually, because yeast can sort of lend those foxy, weird, like peanut notes to the background, right. which are totally appealing. This is great. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so in the U S well, and I guess the whole world market. Sure. Um, when rye started to, I guess, well, going back a little bit before that, um, people's palates started changing. They were going for lighter spirits. Uh, Canadian Club and Crown Royal just like Smearing started off, blowing course, yeah, up, you totally. know. Um, and uh, it took a while for the the palate to change back to enjoying things like this and. Liking a little bit of uh, grit and some balls behind your whiskey, you know? Sure, sure. Um, it's really exciting to see all the new brands that are coming out as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. You know, there's uh, so many craft distillers and, like, I mean, even in New York alone, there's there are quite a few now. A pile of them. And they are doing great things. And they've done a huge amount to sort of take whiskey and, you know, for lack of a better term, make it sexy again. Like, mm -hmm. it's like this is a local product that's being made locally, ideally. Uh, it's being done sort of in the old style. It harkens back to, you know, an earlier era where, you know, coming out of World War II or, you know, the mythical Great Golden Past where this is homespun product and American whiskey. And it's really difficult to get much more American than American rye or American bourbon. Right. I mean, I've been reading a lot on it lately. Um, Social History of Bourbon is a great book by Carson. Uh, but, you know, I mean, like, we had distillation in this country from the minute this country was founded, because in most cases, unless you were on the far eastern seaboard in a port city, it made much more sense to distill some of what you were producing. Absolutely. For ease of the market. In fact, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, which happened uh, yeah, right after this country was brought together, at Pennsylvania, and there was a little bit in Kentucky and Maryland as well, was mostly a big issue, because in order to pay the war debts that we accrued as a country, we started charging immediately excise taxes on stills. You could pay either a fixed amount per, uh, you know, the capacity of your still or pay a number of cents on every gallon that you're still produced. But the big thing was that uh, this excise had to be paid in currency. Um, yeah. And uh, for those who aren't aware, like in western Pennsylvania, Kentucky, all of the sort of frontier regions of the country at that point, there was no U.S. currency. Right. Everything was done by barter, and whiskey was actually effectively like the medium of exchange. See, so the double hit of the... You know, government that you had appointed to fight the British from taxing you, 
begin taxing something that was very near and dear. I mean, you would make your own whiskey back in the day, much like you would salt your own pork or chop a tree down or, you know, till your own fields. It was just something that everyone did. And not only were you being taxed suddenly on something that was considered a very, you know, personal thing, but you were being taxed in money that you didn't have. Right. Understandably, people were a little bit angry They're, about this. Yeah, they, they get a little pissed off about that. Uh, you know, and the Western uh, rye world sort of rye took its first big blow at that point, obviously, because Pennsylvania was pretty harshly shut down. Mm-hmm. I think George Washington marched 13,000 troops into eastern Pennsylvania pretty much straight away. And while the old saw that bourbon started when everyone fled down to Kentucky isn't strictly the case, Kentucky was a little bit farther out and a little bit more on its own. So bourbon was able to develop a little bit more there. Um, yeah, I mean, so we do have all these new local producers. But there are some things that only the older whiskey houses can do. Um, Often, frequently, in modern uh, whiskeys that are being produced, the distillers don't mash their own grain. They'll purchase mash from a brewer, and then they'll, you know, distill that mash after they've fermented it. In a number of cases, in very fine whiskeys, I might add, like, these labels, they don't even have a distillery. They purchase whiskey from one of the major producers, which sure. is a time-honored practice, um, and then bottle it under their own. And it's, you know, you could say it's slightly misleading because they refer yeah, to their I mean, distilleries. But, but that's that's common of other uh, other areas of, of you know, the spirit world. You know, like sure. um, for instance, you know, like in cognac, you know. Not everyone has a still house. They buy. Most everyone doesn't, actually. Right. I mean, they produce so little of their own stuff. But yeah, and they buy from different places and they blend it. I and mean, however, scotch. Scotch, that absolutely. But it's interesting to note that the Bottled and Bond Act, and uh, a lot of people are confused when you talk about Bottled and Bond. Had a couple of discussions recently. It was actually a first attempt to establish a purity sure. and a guarantee of quality on whiskey. Because what you had going on was people would purchase barrels of whiskey from a whiskey producer and by the time it hit the consumer it had been watered down to a fairly low proof and cut with a great deal of other things all the early distillation handbooks and bartending handbooks talk about how to create bourbon whiskey and uh, i mean you can look at fleischman's guide actually from the 1890s and he's one of the better of them but blending was endemic so the bottled and bond act was uh, dropped i believe in 1897 before the Pure Food and Drug Act, which we'll talk about in just 10 seconds. And uh, it said, all right, this whiskey is going to be aged at a government-bonded warehouse under government lock and key for a minimum of four years. It's going to be bottled at exactly 100 proof. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the product of one distillery and one season. The market had just been flooded by a bunch of whiskeys, which were frankly crap because everyone was buying and there was no guarantee of quality whatsoever. Um... Which, you know, is, is interesting today because I, one product I looked at recently, which is by a fine company, I noticed on their label that it's referred to, it's got, you know, a state, and then it says whiskey. But in very light gold coloring between the state and the whiskey, it says spirit. Hmm. And uh, this is, you know, I mean, this is a small producer who we all love, and they want to make a whiskey of their own eventually someday. But it's a little disingenuous because spirit whiskey is actually a congressional category. It's one step slightly higher than a blended whiskey. Hmm. It has to be 21% straight whiskeys and can be no more than 79% grain neutral spirit. I did not know that. I know. And I, I, I That's was, why you're back on the show. <laughs> what can I say? I was looking at the bottle the other day. I'm like, wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's take a look at what this is. So it's not you know, strictly disingenuous, but, and it's not, exact, it's not a poor quality product, but 
you're definitely peddling these things as whiskeys that are being produced as whiskeys and straight whiskeys, except the consumer doesn't really understand what a straight whiskey is anymore. Right. Um, and this is very similar kind of to what we might have had going on like in the period before Bottle and Bond. And it's interesting that with the rise of these independent distillers who are trying to get off the ground, uh, you know, we have more of these products being passed off as whiskey that are not really technically what you or I or a whiskey drinker would consider to be whiskey. Um, and the old houses have the advantage. If you talk about Jim Beam, if you talk about uh, Maker's Mark, if you talk about Wild Turkey or uh, any of just the big boys in this business, yeah. Heaven Hill, like uh, these guys have production facilities and aging capabilities that the smaller guys just don't have for the most part because they're big and they're established. Many of them still use wild yeast propagated that was originally propagated wildly, wet yeast and what are called Donna jugs. I don't know of any micro distiller right now that's propagating their own yeast. And uh, if anyone does, please hunt me down and contact me because I'd be fascinated. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now the older houses, though, are trying, are still a little bit behind the times for the most part on catching up with the whiskey trend. I think one of the big exceptions would be Buffalo Trace, who've yeah. uh, very shrewdly capitalized on the desire for new products. But in a lot of other cases, you still see these, what you sort of refer to in the trade as legacy labels, mm-hmm. like Old Overholt. Old Overholt was retained as a brand because it had, uh, you know, passionate drinkers who were very loyal to their brand. Mm-hmm. Most of those people are probably, you know, at least in a retirement home at this point, to be generous. And then there are a couple of us crazy, you know, younger types who have just reconnected with rye, which mostly started to happen in, um, I'd say, what, 2004, 2005? Yeah, I mean, mid-2000. Uh, uh, and, you know, I think a lot of us got into it, you know, for different reasons, but definitely the, the cocktail boom had a lot to do with that. And, uh, you know, people just, you know collecting like this and hunting down these products oh, yeah, finding you know driving down the road you know in the middle of nowhere and stopping into the liquor store just Gotta to see what like they have you know a bottle of Stitzer Will or uh, Stitzel Weller like bourbon like old Fitzgerald made back in the day by Julian Van Winkle when he was Pappy Van Winkle when he was still distilling you can still find these bottles on the internet you can still find them in a couple of stores they go for astoundingly high prices. Um, but we're going to the break at this point, I believe. So yep. I'll pour out the next tasting. We'll take a second here. Cool. And, uh, we'll be right back with you. All right, cool. Back with Nick Jarrett in just a moment.
program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Speakeasy. In the studio today, we have a good friend of the show, Nick Jarrett. We've been talking about a lot of uh, really interesting stuff uh, pertaining to the the laws, actually, uh, and like the history of American whiskey. And uh, the differences between you know bottled and bond and uh, spirit whiskey, straight whiskey, straight yeah, whiskey, absolutely. all this stuff, really cool stuff. Um, and really talking about the history of why these things have changed so much over the years. And you know, we were talking about the whiskey rebellion before, and uh, excise taxes, I, excise in general, taxes yeah. and they just recently, I guess it was like maybe four or five years ago, changed the excise tax for a distillery in New York state, it was 50, it was like $50,000 a year yeah. and they dropped it down to 2,500 a year. Sure. Sure. So for just general licensing and everything else. Yeah. I mean, I believe that they're working with uh, the Senate right now. The American distillers Institute is working with the Senate right now on lowering the excise tax for micro producers. Yeah. Uh, they might have even already succeeded in that, which, you know, are producers who generate less than say, you know, Again, your big boys like Heaven Hill, Wild Turkey, and so forth, to allow a little bit more room for innovation and so on. Yeah. Um, and you know, there was a time when, like we were talking about, when the uh, <laughs> when the whiskey rebellion popped up, and all these people were like, "What the hell? You're you're trying to charge me for what I've been doing this yeah, whole forever. time? Like for, even even the British didn't charge for me to distill whiskey. Yeah, dude, come on. Yeah. Um, and it was the first tax in the United States. In Absolutely, the, of the United States. And it got a whole bunch of other taxes started. It was wildly unpopular. I mean, it lasted from, I think, 1792 and change, or maybe even 1780s to uh, 1806 or 1802. Mm-hmm. Jefferson wasn't uh, having any of it. Yeah. It was then repealed. Of course, it was quickly instituted again the minute we got into the War of 1812, because once you realize that you can pay taxes pretty quickly by raising revenue yeah. on uh, something like whiskey or you know cigarettes or whatever else you charge people for. You didn't figure out income until later on. Uh, but yeah. yeah. And now, you know, that's really one of the things that started... Uh, it's one of the main reasons why there are moonshiners. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just a modern conception of moonshine. I wanted to touch on a really interesting product that came out recently, which is uh, Jonathan Forrester's Dutch's Moonshine which is a sugar wash moonshine, which if you want to taste what moonshine really tastes like these days, by all means, go out and buy yourself a jug of Jonathan Forrester's moonshine. Because uh, the days of moonshiners producing, you know, idyllic corn whiskeys and unaging them out in the hills somewhere, like, that hasn't been the reality since probably the Whiskey Rebellion, or at least the 1870s, 1880s. It's certainly in Prohibition, like, all the moonshine was made from sugar. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, like, uh, if you taste that, that, it's a very accurate moonshine in comparison to some of the real moonshines I've had out of milk drugs in the past. Which, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's rum. It's rum. Yeah. So, uh, to, to my knowledge, like, with the exception of perhaps a couple tiny, tiny holdouts and perhaps old guys out in the hills and families that do it, there aren't really that many people producing moonshine that's whiskey. I wish I would have uh, known that we were going to talk about this today because I actually have some western Pennsylvania moonshine from up oh, in the hills. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's probably up around 140 proof or so. Sure, pop skull. I mean, yeah. you know, it's 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 white lightning, all right. <laughs> you 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 will see lightning by the time you're done with it. Absolutely, it'll get you where you're going. <laughs> but um, yeah, back to whiskey. I guess uh, 
Well, we were going to talk a little bit about the Pure Food and Drug Act, which was just sort of the final like, thing that legislated that almost superseded the Bottled and Bond Act, which said, okay, whiskey has to be this. It has right. to be at least 50% corn. It has to be just whiskey. Uh, but Bottled and Bond, which you know we touch on because the old overhaul we have in front of us today is Bottled and Bond, sort of hung on because even in those couple of years, which it had only been around for nine years before the Pure Food and Drug Act came out, People began to look at sort of bottled and bond as being a mark, a guarantee of quality. Right. You knew that if your whiskey was bonded, it was good whiskey. And even after the Pure Food and Drug Act, people were still going for the bonded, which commanded a premium over other whiskeys. Which today, actually, ironically, bottled and bond does not command a premium over other whiskeys. Right. By any means. I mean, you can go out and buy a bottle of Rittenhouse, and the price has gone up on that for still under around 20 bucks a bottle. Yeah, some. You can buy a bottle of old granddad bottle and bond for under 20 bucks a bottle. You yeah. can buy a bottle of Laird's for like 17 or 18. Um, but, you know, Prohibition hit and everyone's taste changed. And then the 60s rolled up in the 50s and people started moving towards lighter spirits. And whiskey, at least the major houses, has been on a little bit of a downhill slant ever since then. You have great yeah. products like Old Overhaul, which was a rye, which Jim Beam pretty much just held on to because it was a legacy label. Right. I mean, they, they have their own uh, Jim Beam straight rye. It's a yellow label. It's hypothetically the same juice as the old Overholt, but in a tasting that we did a couple weeks back, we found them pretty markedly different. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, sort of a race to the bottom on stuff like this. Like, uh, it dropped from 100 proof uh, at some point, maybe in the 70s, 60s, 70s, to uh, 86 proof. Uh, definitely it's not eight years old anymore. The age probably dropped down to six years. Ironically, uh, everyone used to declare age. Um, for bottle and bond, you used to have to declare age. Right. Which we sort of let slip by the wayside. We don't declare the season it's made in anymore. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Yeah. <clears throat> um, we're drinking a little bit of Old Fitzgerald bottle and bond right now, actually. Which is another product that's not yet available in New York, but... If we have our way, it will be very soon because it's a rock star bourbon at 100 proof, bottled it in bond oh, style. And uh, one of the things I love personally about bottled and bond is in addition to it being at 100 proof, which is just a little bit of extra bang for your buck, it has to be made by one distillery, but most importantly in one season. Now, pretty much none of the other whiskeys that are bottled and bombed except for Evan Williams single barrel, which we're going to come to in a minute, and then Old Forester uh, has their birthday bourbon. Mm-hmm. have a specific season or a vintage dated. Most whiskey houses now blend across seasons, and any age declaration there is is a minimum age of the blend. When you have a whiskey that's distilled in one season, it's really more of a showpiece for the skill of the distiller and of the house, because you can't cover up defects and imperfections in the whiskey by blending it with whiskeys from another season. Sort of a truer expression of whiskey, if you will. Um, which is fantastic. I mean, I love my whiskey. Yeah. and I mean, does, does most of the uh, Buffalo Trace antique collection, don't they put the season in the year? Good one. Good one. But those are specifically collector whiskeys. Right. And uh, you have your choice. We're talking about something we can get off the shelf for, you know, 30 bucks or so. Oh, sure. And I mean, like, they are incredibly underpriced. Mad allocated. I mean, it can be tough to track yeah. down. <laughs> but uh, there you've got your choice of one 17-year-old bourbon, one 18-year-old rye. Um, a really, really uh, in-your-face cast-strength bourbon at 15 years, I believe the stag is, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure about the age on the hand you're the weller, but two more really overproof uh, rye and wheat whiskeys, specifically. So not your everyday sipping whiskeys. Uh, some would even say that the 17 and the 18 years on a whiskey, or even the 15 years on a bourbon, is a little overaged. I mean, I tend to like, yeah. my, I tend to like my whiskeys a little bit younger, with a couple of exceptions. Anywhere from like 12 to 15 is a good... 
you've got a good window there. But for rye, I don't know, man. Sure. 21 to 24, 25-year-old rye. Well, they've got longevity. Like, yeah. uh, you can, you can, and, I mean, this happened during Prohibition again, where you weren't distilling new stock, but you were having old bottles come off that had been held throughout the entirety of Prohibition, distilled in 1917 and bottled in, like, 1933. Mm-hmm. So, a little bit older, and to a degree, perhaps, the taste for older whiskeys really came about a little bit more after that for the remaining whiskey drinkers. But one of my favorite whiskeys that's not bombed that is Jim Beam White Label. Yeah. I mean, it's four years old, four to maybe four to six, but we'll call it four years old comfortably. Yeah. And yeah. it's a straight bourbon, and you can taste the yeast, you can taste the wood, you can taste the mash. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want all of that, like after 12 to 15 years, you're beginning to taste mostly the wood. And in the case of rye, in some cases, the mash, like Elijah Craig 18 year, like yeah. uh, it's a fantastic whiskey, but like it's all smoke and leather. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, all the barrel right there. Which I actually like. But oh, I, I don't want to yeah. get too far away from the original product yeah. either. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with it. Like, every now and then for a special occasion, it's nice to sip on a really old whiskey. But by that token, like, eight years. And that's another one of the things, too. Like, the Declaration Wild Turkey used to declare as being eight years old. Right. More and more, most American whiskeys are losing their age declarations on the label, especially the main brands. Um, more and more, we're starting to lose some of these brands, too. I mean, we talk about all these new craft distilleries popping up. <sighs> But now there are rumors of Wild Turkey pulling their 101 rye. Yeah, which, I mean, I, I haven't personally confirmed, but I've been hearing a lot of buzz over it, which would yeah. really be a tragedy because that's a, you know, Wild Turkey is one of those sort of, I mean, they're not technically a high rye bourbon, but they come off that way, and they are a very, very old-school producer. They do a lot of things that other distilleries don't do anymore, just in terms of uh, barrel management, aging, um, mash bill, yeast propagation. Wild Turkey 101, which, again, used to be declared as eight years and is now probably substantially younger. I mean, again, we're talking probably six four, years. Four to six. I mean. um, because and I, the, the money in whiskey is all on the old whiskeys, ironically. Yeah. Because you're charged on, your taxes are not on the years. Your taxes are on the alcohol. Right. So the older your whiskey is and the more you can charge for it, the more profit you make off of it. Whereas in other businesses, you look at something that's cheaper and you're being taxed on the percentage of the cost. Right. So that's another reason why we have sort of products like Old Overholt and so forth that are a little bit endangered because they aren't the big money makers. Right. Um, and there's only really a, a small circle of us who uh, care about it. Well, I mean, frankly, again, I, uh, with the exception of a couple of cities like New Orleans and so forth, if it weren't for the cocktail boom, some of these brands like... 10, 11, 12 years in, might not be here for much longer. Right. The cocktail resurgence has sort of kept a lot of these old horses going, which is a fantastic side effect. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, I, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be drinking Red House, that's for sure, if uh, God, no. cocktails I mean, hadn't like, come back. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy it. It's not what most people would look at as being a sipping whiskey. And that sort of brings me to the whole point of the whole Occupy whiskey thing that we sort of kicked around yeah. a little bit drunkenly the other day at lunch. <laughs> Uh, some of these older companies are still trying to get with the program, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, have been releasing new products, like Jim Beam dropped a new rye a couple of years back, which right. was sort of met with mixed reception, which was the, the rye wine product. And um, I'd just like to throw it out there. It's sort of a challenge. It's like, well, why don't you keep the old overhaul regular and then throw some of it into a bonded warehouse, age it for eight years. Absolutely. Bring it back to its sort of heritage as a bourbon. Um, you know, it's a shame that we're losing this heritage of these older bourbons. Like, these bottled and bond whiskeys are such throwbacks. Uh, what we're going to sip on now is a little bit of Evan Williams single barrel, which is vintage dated. Cool. 
Uh, it's meeting a lot of the requirements for bonding. It's just a little underproof. It's 10 years old, but it would have been comparable if a little bit lighter in alcohol to some of these products in their heyday. Yeah. Now, what do you think about, I mean, in your honest opinion, what do you think is going to happen with uh, the future of these whiskeys? I mean, do you think they, that the companies will come back around and decide that it's something that's worth their time and effort to kind of preserve? I mean, as far as like the historical side and you know, matched up with the sales and everything. (laughs) Well, I think that's a really interesting point. And that sort of touches on where cocktails are going as well as everything else. Liquor companies sort of tend to look at two categories, two demographics of customers. They look at their sort of low-end, like younger kids drinking quantity for cheap. Then they look at their sort of, uh, you know, connoisseur customers. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily look for an overlap between the two, nor do they put the emphasis on, you know, Mix in the middle. I'd say that blended whiskey consumption, American blended whiskey consumption in this country right now, without looking at the numbers, has to be down to pretty much a record low. Yeah. I can't imagine that anyone's buying Philadelphia or <laughs> Hollers, uh, right. whatever, or Fleischmann's or Imperial or any of these sort of Americans. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, all right, they're moving in the wells of dive bars, like one of the ones I work at. I'll take <laughs> that back. But I always try to tell the people who are ordering, I'm like, just pay the extra dollar. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, what you were saying about the the actual high-end versus low-end uh, consumer, I mean, you, but then I, you say that, but then I, I have to slightly disagree with you there because I think, you know, like companies like Buffalo Trace, which is probably my favorite sure. distillery, absolutely, they're all right there, like, in the pocket, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Like, anyway, uh, anywhere from their, their Buffalo Trace to even the 12-year Pappy Van Winkle. I mean, even if you dig up some of their, like, budget products, like, uh, they're they're producing Tom Moore now still, I think. Yeah. She's one of the Bottled and Bonds. Mm-hmm. I know they bought up Barton a couple years back, which had a lot of that portfolio. Yeah, they have a Bottled and Bond Barton. And, uh, yeah. Which is I mean, eight-year Bottled and Bond. Exactly. Uh, Barton has a Perfect couple. example. And whenever we talk about Buffalo Trace, I mean, we do a lot of these whiskeys, the slightly younger and older labels. A bit of a disservice when we talk about the newer whiskeys that come out instead because they're sexy. Yeah. When there's a huge product portfolio that they're capitalizing on the recipes and the methodologies from. Which, uh, you know, I mean, they... And Buffalo Trace is actually great for respect to their heritage. I mean, they just dropped the Colonel Taylor uh, bourbon. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely product. Uh, obviously, they have George T. Stagg, Thomas Handy, which are all named after senior sort of figures in the whiskey mm-hmm. world. But that mid-range, once again, like I'd love to see a little bit more capitalization from the other distilleries on, all right, Old Overholt, here's a rye. Rye is popular. Don't try to release some new rye and new packaging. Take the rye that moves for you. Yep. Go back again sort of touching on its heritage which is appropriate because this is the heritage radio network uh you know let's go back and uh, drink old style uh you know whiskey the way that it was consumed if not necessarily pre-prohibition because it's really tough to tell what pre-prohibition whiskey tasted like after you know 100 years in the bottle it picks up a lot of flavors that weren't necessarily there to begin with yeah well that's why it's great having guys like you around who bring in these old bottles so we can actually get a taste of the past oh absolutely i'm bummed that i couldn't bring in that bottle of monticello which is a maryland one of the premier maryland ryes and they were famous for being a blending house but it's a straight rye blend well when you come on next time yeah exactly i'll bring my uh vintage bottle of applejack oh yeah taste them side by side uh, well, you know what? Let's bring some other stuff. I have an old bottle of Campari that Tiki Adam gave me. We'll taste sure, some side by side. We'll do. Sure. We'll have a, a really fun. A little bit of the side by sides is interesting. I mean, like this is uh, yeah. It's it's again like 
whiskey is such a fundamentally American product. Laird's, uh, you know, I was tickled pink to be working in um, North Carolina maybe last year and seeing bottles of uh, Captain Applejack down there. Nice. Which when they moved from New Jersey because you couldn't afford to buy apples in New Jersey anymore because where are the apple orchards? Down to West Virginia. Like, uh, you know, that, that was the last remaining other Applejack and they still package it with the label that it had at the time. Uh, you know, these are the things that are great about being a spirits lover, and, you know, an aficionado of whiskeys. Like, it doesn't always have to be the high end. And, uh, you know, we just hope not to lose a lot of the heritage and see a lot of these great old brands. Uh, we were talking about J.W. Dom. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mellow Corn is one that, like, has seen a little bit more distribution, really, which is bonded uh, straight corn whiskey. What, is it a year? It's only like a year or two. Well, corn, corn whiskey got that special exemption uh, when everyone defined it. Like, it's the only whiskey that's allowed to be aged for, like, up to a year without yeah. having to declare it. But, um, you know, I mean, this is, this is what people's grandparents were drinking. This is what people were drinking during Prohibition. This is what people were drinking, like, throughout the heartland of the country. And this is what cocktails were based on. Absolutely. Like, I mean, if you want to, like, if you want to make a truly authentic pre-Prohibition whiskey, you know, go ahead and add some... Uh, Everclear to it, and maybe some <laughs> caramel food coloring, and a couple other things. That's your old West cocktail for you. But in the the toitier bars that Jerry Thomas and Harry Johnson, like the Knickerbocker and so forth, uh, these were using you know these products. Absolutely. And uh, like going back in search of that heritage and sort of uh, you know showing a little bit of love to what came before is what we're all about. Absolutely. Nick, it's been great having you on the show. Damon, it's always a pleasure. The website is going to be coming out soon. It's OccupyWhiskey.com. Yeah, we do own the domain name. We own the domain. So it'll be chock full of all this kind of great information, reposts of old articles, and just a just whole lot of history about whiskey. ridiculous demands on big corporations about releasing whiskeys <laughs> that we want to drink. Exactly. Hell yeah. Thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, I'm Damon Bolte, Nick Jarrett. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Man, I wouldn't lie. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Man, I wouldn't lie. The cat's higher than a kite. Boys, he's high. Just look at them two black eyes. You know I wouldn't lie. He's higher than the sky. When you see him tipping round and round the block. Don't get my- know that cat is very beat. Beat clean down to his socks. That cat is high, boys, I wouldn't lie. Oh, my, oh, my, he's higher than a kind. Yeah. Yeah,